Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Music is a universal language. It changes the chemistry in the brain and the way that we feel emotions. Asher began classical violin at the tender age of two and was performing with the Buffalo Philharmonic by age 13. Have a listen to his unbelievable talent. He's performed in Madison Square Garden, Lincoln Center. He's been featured on PBS, CNN, NBC. You guys are in for a treat. Asher Laub, welcome to the Better Call Daddy show. So I think you are the first guest off of Podmatch that I've said yes to. And I actually get a lot of people reaching out to me on there. Have you had success there? So I have like a, a small team that does outreach directly from email and then they supplement with Podmatch. And uh, yeah, I've had some great some great connections starting with this yeah so i don't know i i, I frankly think they're all kind so of that wasn't really same. you uh no what do you mean no i am an extension of my team i check everything okay i check cool. all messages yeah yeah well, you had just... commented that you listened to the jay Ferranzi one hold on i'm gonna read the message here you go this is what works Great show, especially episode 213 with the music man with the business plan, Jay Franzi. I actually love him. I'm an electric violinist, composer, producer, and performer. So I love what you do. That gets podcasters' attention. I mean, you obviously know that. Yeah, I I am completely involved in every aspect of my career, whether it's interviews, like the nitty gritty. I micromanage everybody and everything because it's, it's all me. So yeah, I'm not yeah. like Elon Musk running five companies and just like divvying out funds. I'm a one person operation. Yeah, talk to me about what that's like. You have a lot going on. Pretty weird. Well, yeah, I do have a lot. I do wear a lot of hats, starting with this one. It's my favorite one, favorite hat. It all kind of started with being an independent artist, independent musician, and it kind of branched out from there to subcontracting out musicians and building teams and the breakdancing uh, performances. I don't know if you've seen that stuff on my YouTube channel the live orchestral and DJ DJ orchestra arrangements. That that stuff is like kind of the, the fiddler's dream hat that I wear. That's the um, event, live music entertainment event company. Yeah, multiple okay, hats Okay, well, here. let's start with your favorite hat. What What is that hat? This is Tonka LA. I did a, a fundraising event at Trump's whatever golf course, one of his millions of golf courses around the world. So first of all, just doing charity fundraisers is, is something that I, I deeply value as a musician. It gives a lot of meaning to you know, beyond the music. And you know, it's just, it's just a high quality hat, you know? Your new favorite best hat. Yeah, it matches the shirt, you know? My wife would be proud. I don't know how to match generally. 
I mean, so that you get like little fun hats and shirts and what else have you gotten from doing cool events? Checks. Those are my favorite. <laughs> Zell direct deposits. And then, you know, and then I kind of pick out my clothes from there. <laughs> okay. I love that. And your checks actually started coming in at a young age. When did you first start getting paid to play music? Oh, I thought you were going to say just paid flat because I was going to talk about lifeguarding. Okay. Uh, you can talk about lifeguarding. Nah, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin the show here. <laughs> it consisted of endless hours of just staring and looking at the pool and you know, anybody and could die on your watch. Bikinis. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that, but since you mentioned it, <laughs> music started very young. I think it's safe to say I put in my time. I did professional events without getting paid as, you know, before college. And once I moved to New York, I was originally from upstate Buffalo. Once when I moved to New York, I was like, enough's enough. I gotta get paid. And I started live events, started playing, you know, actually sending applications to, to other bands and they accepted me. And that the, you know, the wedding industry kind of took me on and then I, that kind of evolved into concerts and fundraisers and that those types of fun things. What about bar and bot mitzvahs? Yeah, why not? They're all in the same category of entertainment and weddings and yeah, that kind of stuff. Not not too not too different. That's a fun. sweet 16 every once in a while. <laughs> really? You know, some of these sweet 16s are are like three times larger than than your average large wedding. <laughs> Although none of them quite hold a candle to the Bollywood weddings. They, they have like a week long production with all their five, 600 guests all staying at hotels. They have elephants roaming around the, the resorts. Yeah, I've seen videos of that. Have you done a wedding in India? Not in India. Got invited a couple times, conflicted with an event, hopefully one of these days. But expats, like first generation, pretty religious, you know, Hindus and South Asian communities. When did That's you start taking an interest in South Asian collaboration. This is going to sound arrogant, but as soon as they started taking interest in me, which I didn't really understand initially, probably my theory is that these South Asian violinists charge exorbitant amounts to show up, I guess, because there's a huge and I guess there's a big emphasis on the violin in that culture. So I really hopped on that wagon pretty quickly about five six years ago okay so fairly recently i think yeah, it's uh, also funny that you said you moved to new york but you're from upstate new york yeah i'm saying new york's <laughs> not really new york it's practically a different state <laughs> new york city is like a world of its own let's be honest tri-state let's start with the cost of living the cost of food the cost of a tissue box i mean just three four times it's just unbelievably expensive to live here are you in the tri-state i'm not my dad no. was i don't blow your cover Huh? <laughs> My dad was a New Yorker, but no, I, it's funny. I always thought I'd end up there, but never did. Okay. Are you in, in the United States? I'm in the United States. Okay. I'm in Texas now. I was ah. just in Chicago for about a decade, but we just moved to Texas over the summer. You got tired of the cold, so you went to the heat. Exactly. Okay. I wrote down some notes from other interviews that you've done. I know that something you say a lot is that music chose you, or your wife said that. She started by saying that. I've just been repeating those lines because it's very, very true. I didn't even think of it that way. I guess I, I initiated applying to, to jobs, but while I was in school, but my, the, the ultimate intention was to do stuff in the sciences, but it was sort of a no brainer because I already had the skills from age two, you know, all these pretty much weekly lessons, private lessons. So uh, it was pretty easy to transition into a professional situation and uh, I was already paying the bills. So amplifying my efforts, so it was pretty natural. Yeah. Talk about growing up in a family of musicians. Let's just start with it. It's an intense family. <laughs> yeah, music wise, definitely intense. Also three siblings, they all played instruments and they're all pretty much, they all could have become professional musicians. Lois, my, my youngest sister's a flautist, two older brothers, 
see Ethan. Ethan, if you're watching this, shout out to you, brother. He uh, plays the oboe like nobody cool. I've ever met. He he was in the UPenn wow. Orchestra, the first oboist. And then my oldest brother, who I looked up to, apparently my mother says that my oldest brother is my inspiration and the, the reason why I actually started the violin. He's a violinist, but he gave it up for engineering. That's not easy either. Uh, <laughs> heck of a lot harder, unless you're a nerd like him. Well, I love speaking you too. of nerds, I mean, you do have three degrees. Yeah, I'm I'm the nerdiest of them all. It's true. I actually have more degrees than, than all of them, but not as many as my wife. So she's the ultimate nerd. She has more than three? Well, she has a PhD. So, you know, talk about overkill. How did you guys meet? In the Heights. You know, I went to YU. She went to Stern. First of my three degrees. Then, well, I was in NYU, I guess. Yeah, that's when we got married. So. Wow. In college. Yeah. College. I mean, isn't that how many people meet? Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. truthfully, I think it would be a lot to get married in college. Yeah. Post undergrad. Post undergrad, I was in a master's program at NYU at the time. So yeah, you're right. It's it's easier to be kind of working. I guess I was working. I was playing music throughout the entire three degrees. And she's working encouraged every weekend. you to do that? She saw that I was the happiest doing that. I think that was it. You know, she just sort of like saw it as, okay, same income. Why not just have fun? And so I did it. That's I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Yeah. She's, she's an amazing person. Give her all the credit. Tell me more about her. Well, she's a wonderful mother. It's our anniversary on Wednesday. That would be tomorrow. Happy anniversary. That's cool. Yeah. I got a surprise for her on Friday. I can't tell you on the show. I don't know when this is going to be released. <laughs> She makes me a better person. And I think by extension, I'm able to make my my children better than they would be otherwise. And that's a big emphasis in my life. Family. Yeah. Even though my career doesn't necessarily lend itself naturally to optimal family type situation, definitely making it work. How are you doing that? A lot of practice. <laughs> I guess giving up a lot. Uh, you could say giving up a lot career-wise. Although I think I'm safe to say I've still managed to do some pretty exciting things. It just just priorities. Just choosing your priorities. So for, if I, I have a limited, my time is my own. I, you know, in this studio, this is what I get, I get my work done. You know, I have, have my production work back here. I get that done. If I, if uh, when the kids come home, it's like, all right, I got to drop everything, go up to dinner. <laughs> Otherwise <laughs> I sleep on the couch. It's challenging, but the alternative is not feeling fulfilled after. I, I don't want to regret things when I'm 80. So I'm trying to tackle everything, have a good, happy family life, have two beautiful kids that I, that I'm proud of and, and a, a career that I'm proud of, even if it's not necessarily the level that I think I can, can achieve. Are you teaching your children music? So my 11 year old took classical piano lessons for a few years and it was kind of, it wasn't an ideal situation, kind of an overly traditional teacher. And we just never got the chance to, I guess, I guess, look around for, for teachers that, that were more, I guess their style is more conducive to his learning interests. We don't want it to be a chore. We want it to be, it was a chore for me for many years. I was just doing etudes and, and that's not, I don't want to put a bad taste in his mouth music. And my daughter, yeah, she's just, she's three. She's jamming away on the piano. That's cute. Yeah. Do you see gifts in your children? Not dot GIFs, but gifts. Part of the pun there. Yeah. I just hope that I can provide the atmosphere and the means to for them to like realize them. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really proud of my son. Super proud of my daughter. I think they'll be able to achieve whatever they set their mind to. And it, it's, it's not an easy thing as a parent to not live vicariously through them. You know what I mean? Like that's oh, what yeah. most parents tend to want to do, right? Yeah. So I'm making a conscious effort to not do that because I don't want to ruin what I have with them. It doesn't mean I let them run amok, but it also means that, 
you know, while I emphasize, okay, you know, grades are important, schools, schools important, being disciplined is important. I, I try to do it more with like a loving approach as opposed to a, you know, I try to be as self-aware as possible. You know, I try to look at my limitations from, you know, my childhood upbringing and I try to kind of filter that stuff when I'm raising my kids. Easier said than done. Yeah. What do you feel like your limitations from your childhood were? Oh, no, no, I'm perfect. I don't know. I, I've had all, all sorts of challenges throughout my life. I mean, just starting with my health challenges. I mean, it's just really, really been, I, I'm going to write a book soon enough. I've had uh, chronic pain, chronic back pain playing, playing the violin. It's been a source of frustration for me. I have, well, this is tough. I know I have a lot of, a lot of shortcomings just trying to think of what I should I haven't thought about it too much because <laughs> a lot of my focus has been around my shortcomings around my my physical health. Okay, you can talk about that. I mean, God, it is challenging to follow a passion that is painful. Yeah, I mean, that's that's deficiency right there. Being headstrong, being headstrong. That 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 would be a good good example of one of my many deficiencies. Law of diminishing returns, I guess, is what they call it. Sort of like never giving up at your own expense. So kind of running a race to the end, even if there's no point to running the race to the end and harming you in the end, meaning just not quitting is is also a problem. They say, oh, don't be a quitter. I, I'm like the opposite of that. I, I, I don't quit anything and I continue until the end, such as my degrees. Even if I see something like not necessarily fitting well. So yeah, I think that's a perfect example. So I guess an example of a filter there is where I, you know, I try to teach my kids to know themselves and know what they truly want, what what they're they're actually gonna want and enjoy in life, as opposed to just following what all their buddies are doing. Something like that. That's hard to do. I'm trying my best. For the people that don't know your story, can you give us just like a quick and dirty from like two years old, you started playing the violin. You came from a musical family. We talked a little bit about that. When did your parents like start investing in lessons and and what was your direction there as far as teachers and finding the right ones and who was good and who knew your style and who motivated you, all that? For the first 19 years of my life growing up in Buffalo, Williamsville, suburb of Buffalo, I went through about seven teachers at least. Not too bad. Not great, but not bad. They started paying for private lessons at two and change. So, you know, I'm on like a little margin box and my teacher's starting me on, I'm, I can't actually play strings at, at that age, but she gave me rubber bands serving as strings. And then I kind of graduated to an actual wood violin, a pretty tiny for a three-year-old. <laughs> a little nutty. I, I see your, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Wow. What's wrong? <laughs> That's crazy to me that they invested so young and that you kept with it that long. I guess I saw the cognitive benefits or they, they definitely did not intend me to make it a professional kind of thing. They were surprised when I started playing events and, and they, they encouraged me just to go back to my studies. But, you know, I said, mom, dad, like, are you serious? You expect me not to be a professional at this point? Like, what do you think some of their most proudest moments of seeing you perform have been where they're like, okay, yeah, maybe you should do this. <laughs> like... It was after many, many years. I, you know, they, they're always proud of me. I think they just didn't want to emphasize it too much because they were afraid of, of the career because it's not something that you traditionally consider to be stable. I, I guess I guess over the last three, four years, they've sort of expressed their excitement and their pride and their enjoyment of my music. When I was on PBS, they're pretty proud of that. I mean, at this point, I'm just, I'm doing this for myself and for my family. So it's not as much about other people as it is kind of about my mission, my ultimate goals as a musician and the impact that I want to have on my fans and my listeners. What's the mission? There's a lot of missions. Uh, I'm going to say one of them is drawing people together across political barriers, religious barriers, cultural barriers. They drive me crazy. Barriers drive me nuts. I, I just see them as like power struggles. So that's something I try to do using the universal language of music. 
specifically instrumentals. I, I do work with with uh, vocalists, but you know my my branding, my my trademark sort of is the violin. So there's no vocals. There, there's no vocals. There's no lyrics there, and, and I I like that people interpret what they what they choose for my music, and I kind of give a general background to the intentions behind it, like such as songs of uh, like Atlantis and Neon Dreams. Yeah, there's always a narrative, but it's instrumental. So I'm not telling the listener what to what to take, what to extract from the song specifically, which is I, I get I get it kind of weird. What do you take I, from the Atlantis? What I take is I, it is public, but it's sort of like this general concept of riding the highs and lows of life and not getting too much too caught up. It's actually a rom bomb kind of concept, uh, as I'm sure you. Yeah, just not getting too excited in the, with the highs, getting too depressed with the lows, and, and just staying even keeled throughout, realizing that life is cyclical, essentially. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. What is your connection to God? It's complex. It's complex because I don't know. I think it's safe to say I don't know. But I do have my my cultural associations, my upbringing, and I try to keep that more or less private, although it's getting harder and harder with social media. And the reason why is because I my mission, again, is not it's about it's more about pluralism than it is about serving one one frame of mind one religion one one way of thinking and a lot of my listeners they're from all walks of life yeah i guess i take pride in that it's just it's very different from what a lot of people i'm associated with in the music industry do do people ask like what are you what's your background yeah all the time they send me dms and they ask you know and it's it's fine i'm eventually gonna give up but <laughs> it's uh it's uh, it's a challenge keeping my private life private. Um, I mean, your name is Hebrew. Yeah, but a lot of people have Hebrew names. You That's know, true. Itzhak I have my again my my cultural tendencies and I have my traditions. I appreciate all walks of life and I have a love for just people and yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that you want to use music as a bridge. I think that that's really cool. Can you talk about how music is a bridge between generations even? Yeah, I guess that I guess lucky me uh, as a violinist, I get to merge the past with the present. And that's what I get to do with my electronic slash classical kind of crossover genre releases. Bunch of them are on Spotify. You can check them out. So that's uh, in a sense. Yeah, that's that's actually another internal struggle. I'm trying to please everybody all the time. So I don't like to just play for like 20 year olds or just 50 year olds or just 80 year olds. I like to play for everybody. And I, and I do. And I guess by doing that, you kind of have to walk this tightrope of playing music that I guess is family friendly, but also appeals to the older generation and the, the younger generation. It's a constant juggling act. It's my ultimate drive. You know, I just I don't like to you get my point. Yeah. Why is that important to you, though? I'm not. Well, that could be a weakness of mine. It's going to turn into a great therapy session. <laughs> um, when I used to visit my, my late grandmother, she passed away 102. And my grandfather also did 102 a few years ago. I always brought my violin and I always played I always played music that she would enjoy, like Shostakovich, Mozart, Bach, that kind of stuff. And she didn't really appreciate so much the, the modern music. And when I, you know, I just got booked for different concerts, I never knew what to anticipate or what to expect. So I just sort of kept expanding my repertoire. Sometimes I'll be playing concerts in front of a you know, South Asian group or, or Israeli group or, or an old age group of, of old people, you know, 70 and up. So I guess naturally I just sort of built up my skills and I just thought at that point, why not just appeal to everybody? There are like David Garrett, I think he's a perfect example. I, I, he should he should start paying me at this point, <laughs> commission for, for promoting him on every show. He's just like, He's like a great example of somebody who appeal two cellos also great examples of violinists, string string musicians, virtuosos that appeal to pretty much everybody across the board. That's the beauty of the instrument, you know, kind of modern pop hip hop type music, but also blending in classical traditional. What did your grandparents say to you when you would play for them? Hun, play something nice. <laughs> 
I mean, like, Grandma, I just played you Shostakovich. Play something nice. She just wanted me to keep playing more music. Followed by, when are you leaving? Grandma, I just got here. Were they musicians too? I don't think so. But they were really into Fiddler on the Roof. They love Fiddler oh, on yeah, the Roof. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. of course. Who doesn't at that age? Hey, at least they didn't ask you to sing. That would have been a good idea. I, I would have sung. I, I, I sing well, except that my throat is never, never kind of held up. When did you start experiencing pain around music? I'm gonna say high school. I noticed it. Yeah, pretty young. I was the only guy in the orchestra who had difficulty holding up the instrument in a sustained manner. Like looking around me, like, why is this heavy for me? Like, like I, I'm able to lift weights. I, I have strength in my arms, but why is it so hard? And I, I'm like noticing all my other, like all the first violinists, second violinists, just sort of just doing this for hours. And I'm, I, I didn't get, I didn't get it until now, decades later. And it wasn't like carpal tunnel. I mean, do other musicians experience similar pain? I know a few professionals. I know a, a pianist. He had to drop piano. He used to tour with some big, big artists and uh, he switched to saxophone because he physically, he just ruined his fingers. He's an amazing jazz pianist. Yeah, sad story. It reminds me of athletes that get injured and then that's it. Oh, tell me about it. Dancers, break dancers. That's another very risky career. Yep. Okay, so you sure. started experiencing pain and then what happened? It progressed to my diagnosis in college uh, a number of years later, chronic inflammatory disease. And that was fun. <laughs> and then and then it got and I thought it was like there, you know, okay, we'll stop there. I'll just deal with inflammation. And then it got worse a few years later, progressed to uh, adrenal insufficiency. And uh, I was in a wheelchair, practically a vegetable. And then I got out of that mess. And uh, you know, I've, I've been I've been in maintenance for, uh, I'm gonna say the better part of like eight years. Okay, Pretty miraculous were, story. You were practically a vegetable? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my dad was there. He was dead. He, my mother, my mother didn't even believe it. Like she didn't, she wasn't even there, but she sent my dad up to, to help me. And yeah, he, he helped me kind of nurse me back, back to health. I'm going to have to say I nursed me back to health. <laughs> I didn't have a whole lot of help, but I was on steroids, permanent dosage of steroids. And I wasn't supposed to get off, but I got off, took a whole lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of unconventional approaches doing all right. Can you talk about the unconventional approaches? Because that's, I feel like key to life. It is, but it's not because I I think what it does is it alienates a lot of people when I talk about unconventional approaches and and it it creates like a whole it opens up Pandora's box to okay well for starters I, I have a I have a nursing degree from NYU so I'm not looking to be controversial here or to or to even advise people on on what they should do medicinally based on just based on the fact that I have a specific story what I did was for me and I, I do speak with people you know one on one just to like give them advice here and there but I can give you like little tidbits like I figured out some of the inflammatory triggers, which uh, through very expensive tests, certain foods that I thought I was fine because IgE immunoglobulin tests that my allergy reactivity was not existent to them. But once I checked these others tests, you know, the, the immune system is very complicated. So there's IgG, IgM, other immunoglobulin responses. So in layman terms, I found that I was reactive to like, for instance, olives, like death, like deathly reactive to like certain certain foods. That was the tip of, tip of the iceberg and it helped to reduce my inflammatory response. And and then there's a whole lot of other stuff that I did, but that's just one okay, example. Okay, so no olives. Yeah, like certain strains, whatever. Avoiding inflammatory factors. I am not saying olives are a problem to anybody. <laughs> In fact, olives are extremely health, healthy, high in monosaturated fats, et cetera, et cetera. For me, 
I was highly reactive to olives and, and I even tested it out to, to see that that was the case. And yeah, I found that to be informative. That is. As IgE is part of a very complex immune system response. It is informative to a certain degree, but it's not, it doesn't really advise people as to how they're reacting to other things in the environment. And that's where I, you sort of draw the line between in-house insurance coverage and out, you know, people that are paying out of pocket for different tests. Healthcare is so hard to navigate. Oh my gosh. You're lucky that your dad was your advocate. Yeah, to a certain point. Definitely lucky to have him around. Yeah. What's your relationship with him like now? I would say it's improved over the years as, as he's aged. It was more uphill from age 21 when he started to see me as an adult. And I'm going to say that what I learned from that, preempting possibly your question, is how to parent a little bit better. You know, what does my son sort of expect from me? Does he want to be treated kind of with a little more, I don't know the word is dignity, but being treated more as an adult with expectations that, okay, you got to follow our rules, but just the, sort of like the way I talk to him is a little bit different than I was talked to. But my relationship with my dad is pretty good. You know, we try to connect weekly. It's something that is obviously important to him and my mother. And I think it's a good thing. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about reinventing yourself after overcoming that challenge? I've got so many challenges. I can't <laughs> know which one of them you're referring to. Adrenal insufficiency. Like, I've never probably even the big heard one. of that. Adrenal glands, basically not unable to produce enough uh, cortisol, enough enough hormones, just just for people to generally wrap their head around the around the situation. If you don't have enough energy, basically the engines of the body. So your question is, how did I reinvent out of that yourself? After reinvent myself. Going through that, I'm gonna say that that was one of the impetuses behind me saying sayonara to the three degrees and taking a risk really and moving forward with with music full-time shifting from part-time to full-time so that was one major shift i also reinvented myself musically from kind of following other people's lead to running my own show in many respects you know as a producer working with other musicians running entertainment the entertainment group working with other artists so being more proactive and doing more concerts that type of stuff the dancing violinist thing for sure that was like a i don't care what people think about me, I got to do this. It's like a love for life kind of response. Yeah. Talk to me about how people responded. They, I think they like it more than I do. You know, I don't think people generally gravitate towards the violin in this society. I think people gravitate towards like rap and DJs and lots of noise and lights. I think that people like dance. And I think that that's sort of the ultimate expression. And merging that with, with violin has been a pretty cool feeling. And I, people definitely enjoy it. Are there any stories that stick with you about fans that have reached out? Some people have told me that I've saved their life, which is puzzling to me. Very flattering, deeply flattering. And it makes me take my job very seriously, a job that you wouldn't necessarily think that to be the case, but when you factor in mental health and that a lot of a lot of listeners who gravitate towards my music, they at least the ones that are really enthusiastic, they tend to share with me just, you know, okay, I lost a loved one, my or they have cancer, or you know, I was suicidal, so on and so forth. Like things like that that we we think, oh, the only cure for that is medication. I found music to be extremely influential. These individuals. Has music Somebody's, helped you in your mental health? It's made me more joyful in life. It's made me find more meaning. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, you could say I'm not, I'm not self-aware. I, I don't see myself as like a, a, you know, manic depressive type of person. I've been labeled as such since I had adrenal insufficiency. I was in bed. I was labeled as, oh, you know, he's depressed. The test showed that I literally am not producing enough cortisol, but saliva test, that type of stuff. But yeah, music, I chose music for a reason. It makes, makes me happy. I jump out of bed, something to really look forward to every day. 
I would love for you to talk about too, like how do you find good collaborations? What have you learned about the legal side? Yeah, legalities. Lawyers are expensive. Uh, and I don't have a full-time law team, but collaborations can also be tricky. I've been on the cusp of collaborations with some pretty big artists that fell through last minute because like I asked for a little bit more of something like a percentage, whatever, of a song that I produced. People, you know, it's, it's one of the toughest parts of the industry, I'm going to say, because people take a lot of pride in their branding and their artistry and what they contribute to a song as a singer, as a guitarist, whatever. And when you're dealing with like known entities, it's a real negotiating act. Have you but, found anyone that can help you with that, that you trust? I wish I could find somebody who I really trust. I, I do not have anybody yet, sadly, that I feel like I could just kind of throw my eggs in whatever to that basket. I Maybe eventually, hopefully, when they, the person comes along. I feel like everybody's opportunistic, like that people are interested in working with you on a case-by-case -case basis that sort of serves them. Of course. But I have a wonderful collaboration. February 10th is coming out. Subtle Pulse is the name of the song. It's a single based on one of my original releases. She's a singer out in Seattle. Cool. Yeah, super talented. Not necessarily like somebody, she's big in like the meditation world. Mm. And it kind of fits violin because people are really looking for, I'm a high energy kind of guy, but my fans, my listeners are constantly asking me for, they trend towards like lower key, more relaxing music. It's a bit of a struggle for me. But so it's probably Bishert that she found me or I found her or whatever. We're working together on this, so. And I did hear you say in another interview as well that you have placed some of your music in video games. That's been around the block. Yeah, it's, I've been, been pretty lucky to have that. I have not had a chance to like pitch songs like A Brighter Day Ahead, which probably should be in a video game or like On the Road, those types of songs. But now that you mentioned it, I, I got to get to work on that one. It's a lot of work. How would a musician even go about being able to pitch their music into a video game? I mean, just simply reaching out to video game producers, but finding them is like a needle in a haystack. There are teams, there are sync licensing companies. I literally, I between the live events, the productions, the collaborations, the interviews, I can't do it all. And I have a team around me and it's still just not enough. I, I need a, a bigger team or a dedicated manager or something like that that I can, again, trust. Oh my God. Like, do you have any advice too around working with managers or promoters or bookers like what has worked well what hasn't worked well i guess the beauty behind working with booking agents on a case-per-case -case basis is if i don't like them i don't have to stick with them and if i like them then i keep taking work from them and we continue to work together it's obviously mutual like but i have had some offers to like sign contracts I guess I just always had cold feet because of all the horror stories of 360 deals with the labels. I might be ready to give that up at some point because it's just, I, I just thought I could handle it all myself and it just becomes overwhelming. At some point, you just got to give up a percentage and in order to grow. The labels, the, the 360 deals are essentially, we're pretty much a bank and we're loaning you money. And this is what they do with, with the artists that got signed. And then they have to run as fast as they possibly can and they got to they gotta win the race. And then they, they pretty much, while they're running that race, i.e., on tour globally or just nationwide, they're selling merch and earning money off of the merch. And that's their income. <laughs> so, you know, you look at Mariah Carey's story, Sinker was a Backstreet Boys. I mean, total, total mess. Are you planning any tours? My tours at this point consist of case-by-case -case booking. So like, you know, I went to Hawaii for like five, five days. So that's like an event, you know, this past summer, you know, I'll go to Florida, like constant, constantly like California, Texas, that kind of stuff. So I'm flying back and forth. I'm just charging per event or per two or three events, that kind of thing. I have not had the resources or the energy or the time to build like a 
cross-country tour with the tour bus with the team I i'd love to i really need help with that when you're planning a tour you're plotting your course how do you how do you have time to do social media every day how do you have time to produce music every month twice a month it's just it's too much so okay so speaking of social media you have built a pretty big presence can you talk about how you've done that you know what? i feel like everybody has <laughs> It's not even exciting anymore. A lot of money and a lot of work. I've really invested in myself. I've worked with a lot of influencers. I've worked with a lot of, yeah, I've, I've done events with some pretty big names, like, I mean, even some major labels. So that's that's obviously helped. And uh, I've been very proactive with my fans. I'm constantly responding via comments and DMs and, you know, emails. I've built up my list. My, my email list, constantly releasing music. So with every, every with every release, my fan base grows. That's essentially what I've been doing. How do you feel when you're on stage? I was born on stage, so it's pretty natural. I love your reactions. <laughs> I try not to laugh. You're like, oh, where are you? That must have been a messy situation. I, I was doing Suzuki. I was in Suzuki String Shop at uh, SUNY Buffalo, three, four, five. We were way, way, way young and doing little playing Mississippi hot dog. I was in the Greater Buffalo Youth String Orchestra, Greater Buffalo Youth Orchestra, all these all these experiences at a young age. So being on stage is pretty natural. I'm kind of used to people looking. I'm totally cool as long as I know what I'm doing with the music. If I don't, somebody pulls like a fast one, it's stressful. It has happened before to me where a curveball was thrown to me in front of thousands of people and it was a song that wasn't supposed to be played and I was front and center and I just jammed my way through it, but it was totally not cool. The concert promoter and the manager and, and the band leader knew it and they're like, it's not never gonna happen again. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it was totally sloppy. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. It's kind of like sounds... having your pants fall down. huh? Yeah, that sounds really uncomfortable. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> have you ever messed up during a performance? Well, that would be one example of a mess up. I, I I don't know if people noticed, but I sure as hell noticed. Yeah, I messed up on stage for sure. You know, I don't have everything perfectly curated, unfortunately. Also, I feel like I should ask you, like, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Because you made it there. Yeah, I did. I'm still scratching my head there. You know what kind of made me less motivated to go back is the fact that they don't allow live or video footage unless you pay them some exorbitant sum. So I'm like, you know what? I don't need this. I did it once, I'm done. <laughs> like it, it was it, it was pretty epic. It was pretty exciting. You know, I love sharing the stage with some, some other really great artists. You know, if they get invited back, sure. But that part's kind of unfortunate from my perspective. Right, I mean, because that could be super useful for your marketing material. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just didn't get it because it helps them. Why not share with my fans that I was there? Like, why would they, why would they want to charge me thousands of dollars to share a performance at their venue? I mean, I get that they're legendary, but they are a not-for-profit. Yeah, <laughs> not I really mean, the case. You're allowed to take pictures there, though, right? I think I don't remember uh, if at that show it was, it was permitted, but definitely a professional videographer was not something we could bring in. Yeah, that is know. unfortunate. But you have had a lot of other very cool experiences. Can you talk about some of them? I know you've played for like the King of Morocco. Is that right? Oh my God. That was, you know what gets me the most upset? Nobody took a video of me there at, I don't even know if I'm, if I'm allowed to say that the location, but it was on Wall Street. He's a big Wall Street investor. He happened to be right there. But the funny part of the story is I pull up I've done a couple of events at this it's a pretty upscale restaurant and I typically just pull up and like the owners know me and they just Wall Street's impossible to park. So they kind of let me bring my equipment out and then I park somewhere else. This time there were cones there and I'm like, OK, move the cone. I get out, move the cone and I pull up and there's like this big husky guy comes with me. He's, Excuse me, you can't park there. I'm like, huh, uh, says who? Like, <laughs> he's like, says FBI. <laughs> I'm like, 
for the first time in my life, I was actually pretty nervous. I was like, just unloading here. You mind if I just quickly unload? Anyway, he's like, yeah, just do it really quickly. I was wondering, was it my client? And it wasn't, but we were at the event where the King of Morocco was literally adjacent to us. So he was watching me play the whole time. And then at the end, he calls me over and I asked my client, like, you know, he's the King of Morocco. You cool with this? And he's like, yeah, yeah, do it. I played and I didn't have a Moroccan song to play, unfortunately, but who like who plays? I had like a, a Middle Eastern song, but it wasn't. Anyway, it was quite an experience. But what gets me upset, what I said originally was I took some video footage and immediately the owner of the restaurant, not even his his security guards, the owner of the restaurant comes up to me and he's like, you need to delete that immediately, like in front in front of me. I'm like, no, you can't. You can't. I got to I got to I need bragging rights here. So I, I deleted it and then he like winked at me. I'm like, okay, comes over to me 10 minutes later. He's like, you can restore it. So I'm like, please show me how. And he's like, oh, it could be done on like an iPhone. Do you have an iPhone? And I have, I got this. So Android and I was not able to restore. So I'm kind of pissed about that. Okay. Well, can you tell me some of your other bragging rights? That's a pretty epic story. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a good story. Yeah, Ivana Trump, that was an interesting experience playing for her. She didn't seem to be in a very good mood. Uh, and at that time, uh, oh, this is why. Right, because Trump had just been elected. That's why. <laughs> That's why she was in a bad mood. She's his, his ex-wife. My entertainment group played at the Waldorf, Dick Cheney and Bush. I don't know why all the Republican, why all the Republicans happen to be popping up on my resume here. It's kind of odd. If you could like have dinner with anyone from the past. The king of Morocco. To... <laughs> oh, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> what was that guy eating? Fine cuisine. Would you um, want to have dinner with him? Is that the one you'd want to have dinner with? Yeah, why not? I'm thinking Paul McCartney would be pretty cool. Just, you know, the musical genre of things. I'm not yeah. so much of a political guy. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? I have so many questions, I don't even know where to begin. Where do you get your inspiration from? Your own father? That's his, that's my question to your dad. Cool. I like that. You will definitely have a lot to say about this episode. He really wants me to have a song for this podcast. What song will that be? Well, I guess I you can decide. Know. Atlantis might be a good one. It is the I story like of my life. Atlantis is the story of your life? Well, the last 15 years of my life. Tell me more. Well, the highs and lows, like I was mentioning, uh, I mean, my life has been full of unpredictable highs and lows. And I've just listening to this music sort of reminds me it's a reminder that life is cyclical, like I mentioned. And so that's why I think maybe Atlantis would be a good, I don't know, addition. All right, well, send me that MP3 over and let people know how they can uh, support you in all your music endeavors. Thank you so much. Sounds like a plan. So if, if you want me to direct people, Asher Lob, I'm the only Asher Lob in the country. So A-S-H-E-R-L-A-U-B. I'm on Instagram, Asher Lob Music on Facebook. If you want to see me do live performances weekly, generally Wednesdays, Thursday evening. I'm on Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, you know, the whole shebang. Uh, just search my name and AsherLob.com. And that'll direct you to all those other sites. So I'm also on TikTok and Twitter. So if you want to see me do my shenanigans, uh, Instagram and Facebook is probably the best. I love your shenanigans. You are honestly, I think, the most talented violinist I've ever seen. I am so touched. I'm honored. Thank you, Rena. Yes. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah. I want to know how I can get my kids involved in music. Make it fun. Take music that they that they enjoy, that is accessible to them. It could be top 40, something that, you know, they they are interested in listening to anyway. Or you can even direct them to to somebody who maybe they admire and say, oh, you know, this person plays music and plays an instrument. And that, that might encourage them because peer pressure 
kind of has an impact. I don't think that etudes is really the way if they're really not gravitating towards towards music. I think that the way to get them interested is making music accessible, having them practice stuff that they enjoy listening to. Have you ever been asked if you would give lessons? Do you do lessons? Quite a few times. I caved in once <laughs> recently. It was an adult, but I'm focused really right now on production and live performances. And I don't really want to get too distracted with teaching, although teaching is deeply entrenched in my mindset. I, I was a teacher in the DOE for four years, but I, I really am trying to stay focused, run one race at a time. I mean, my daughter wanted to play violin and I just never founder a teacher. I mean, do you think that you can start at 12? Yeah, why not? Yeah, absolutely. At, at bare minimum, it's good for brain development for they've done all sorts of research on on the impact that that playing an instrument has on connecting the neurons across the lobes of the brain. Pretty fascinating. The whole brain yeah. lights up. Do you think that that brain lighting up thing happens at any age? Yeah. I mean, if you're playing an instrument, yeah, I think the the younger, the better. So yeah, 12, why not? Yeah, yeah. you don't have to start at two like my obnoxious self. Oh, it was overkill. Even Itzhak Perlman started at five. Actually doesn't speak too much about my success because I had an advantage over him. Well, anyway. I mean, what you've fused together and all that you have done is pretty impressive. So thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to have to look into teachers for my daughter. I did just decide because <clears throat> my 14 year old has taken an interest in chess. My dad was almost a chess master and I've had Evan Rabin on the show who was a chess master. So I decided to hire Evan to give my son some private lessons because my son is like, when my son decides he wants to do something, he is like gung ho, like all in. So I was like, all right, well, he's taken a gung ho interest in chess. Let me, huh. you know, support that for a little bit. Huh, pretty cool. I have a, a random question for you. Yeah. How did you like working with Jerry Springer? How did I like it? Oh, I yeah. could do a whole episode on that, but I know I did like it. It was my first job out of college. So I didn't have like, you know, a whole lot to compare it to. I, I had had how did you like him? How did I like him? Like, did you find him to be a genuine person? Oh, yeah. He's a sweet oh, really? guy. Yeah. Huh. I actually interviewed him episode 210, which is so crazy that he and I reconnected 20 years later. I mean, that truly made starting a podcast worth it, to be oh. honest. You've got to listen to that episode. I will. You can hear the excitement in my voice. But, you know, I was a kid. Like, I was literally uh. 21 years old. And I uh. was new to living in a big city. And I was just hungry to prove myself and to work in entertainment and he gave me that opportunity, you know? Uh -huh. So I will say this, after reconnecting with him 20 years later, he really cared about his crew and he really understood a lot of what we were going through and never really let on to it. Like when the show moved from Chicago to Connecticut, he was mm -hmm. actually upset that people that worked for him for their entire careers couldn't come. You know, they had families, they had kids, they couldn't relocate. But a lot of people, including my old intern on the show, stayed with him for 20 years. So he had, that speaks loudly huh. to who he is. He had a lot oh, yeah. of people stay with him for decades. His core crew, I know at least five people that stayed with him from the time that I was there. That's interesting. What comes to mind is Dave Letterman because his band stayed with him for, for decades also. So. He's a mensch, like truly. He cares yeah. about his family. He cared about his huh. crew. I, I liked huh. him as a person. He's he's a smart guy. Yeah. I love that's his really... publicist too. Shout out Linda Schaffern if this gets put in. I've kept in touch sure. with her for 20 years too. Well, thanks uh, for being patient because I know like you reached out to me like a really long time ago. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun.
Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Asher is willing to sacrifice himself, body and soul, to do what he loves. That's playing music. Plays violin. He's probably, you know, as we would say in chess, a grandmaster. It's so intoxicating to be at that level that he's willing to sacrifice just about everything for it. And yet at the same time, wants to have a family, wants to be able to have some balance in his life. Not much into wanting to necessarily expand upon it, you know, where, you know, he doesn't really want to teach it. He wants to be able to perform, collaborate with the highest level of professionals. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's wonderful. It's quite a sacrifice to get to that level. It's more than just performing. It's also gives them psychological relief as well, is my take on it. Yeah, music is so powerful. A very powerful thing. Even even your dad really loves hearing a beautiful music and seeing certain performances, whether it's you know on the TV or live, where people that can excel playing music and being able to sing. I also find that to be quite intoxicating and fascinating as well. And your dad loved music too. Oh, for sure. He liked the aspect of being on the stage, the show business, seeing the the color of performers like. Frank Sinatra and Harry Belafonte and seeing the, you know, being part of the Diana Shore show and everything. And remember, he was part of the lighting. Not only did he want to light up the world, but he wanted to be part of the music and the culture of the world as well. And as you know, my dad also studied with Einstein and also served in World War II, where that loyalty and camaraderie ship and dedication to his country These were all very powerful emotions. My dad was able to experience all of those things and then wanting to cut out a place, become an entrepreneur and someday run his own business. And as you know, I was his main right-hand general with my mom. Make that dream come true. Sometimes not only personal sacrifice, but the sacrifice of other people as well. And Asher talked a little bit about being a solo entrepreneur and how he has to touch all aspects of his business. And he likes that personal touch. He wants to be able to collaborate with others, but he wants to be able to have his finger on all work that's being done because he's a little bit of a perfectionist and he wants it right. And he feels like the only way to really be sure of it is to be able to do it yourself. And of course, good to be hands-on and be able to do it yourself, but you do have to trust in others and give them an opportunity to participate if you really want to not only grow, but to really get your outreach as far as it can go. You have to be able to include a lot of people around you. Now, his question to you, too, was about who you got your encouragement from. Would you say that just like you give me encouragement, you really got that from your parents? I got it from my parents. I got it from my grandparents. I was very fortunate and lucky to have a lot of mentors, religious mentors, school mentors, grandparents, and even other people's grandparents. I was always a sponge to listening to other people's experiences. And encouragement is its just a tremendous value. I agree with Asher. It's that encouragement, that push, drive forward. And with somebody there rooting you on, I always perform better when people were rooting me on. Always. It juices me up. It sends that adrenaline flowing. Other people on the stage or in a big show, they get nervous and they don't perform as well under pressure. I wasn't one of those people. I was one of those people that the more pressure, the more encouragement, the bigger the game, and the more cheers, I was able to take it to another level. 
And isn't that what some of these people that play sports or play uh, or in business or certainly in music or are competing at a very high level takes all of those ingredients really be able to have a chance for stardom? It's a big sacrifice. Sure is. But what's ironic about the term so-called success is that you chase your tail for success and you can work your whole life towards something. We're here on this earth such a short time so that if we don't invest in building a family and building a legacy and building an example for your children and your children's children to follow, we're also missing out on the formula of life. So we want to achieve and we want to do well, but I think part of why we're here is also to share it with others and hopefully share it with loved ones. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.